I pray that uh, that that song really was uh, kind of a heart cry for you. It is well with my soul. Don't we need to have that resonating in us each and every day as we face life in a broken world? Man, those are good, good uh, words. All right, well, we are going to jump right in here. Uh, We're coming to the finish line of Isaiah, but there is a whole lot here, and we don't want to just just kind of wimp out at the end. We want to really dig in. Uh, In some ways, these chapters are the great news that we've been waiting for for about 10 months. So uh, super excited about getting into this text today. Last week, we were in Isaiah 63 and 64. We'll do 65 today, 66 next week, and then we'll wrap up the series the week after that. And uh, as you heard Jeff discuss last week, um, an expanded view of Christ's complex role as the servant was uh, unearthed as we looked at uh, 63 and 64. And on the one hand, he was coming as a uh, suffering servant, right? So servant is the title, but a suffering servant. And then last week, we get a warrior king who is coming with uh, great fierceness to exercise judgment on the enemies of God. And admittedly, those are very difficult attributes or characteristics to integrate. We would probably like to just take one or the other, but putting those together in one servant can be very challenging. This expanded and complex view is all the more intriguing when we consider consider that the two interventions described there actually occur in history 2,000 years apart and counting. Remember, the the suffering servant came in the first advent and we're waiting for the second. So I I want you to, for just a second, put yourself in Isaiah's shoes and he's writing about this servant and these two descriptions of the servant. And if we're just reading Isaiah, if we're just with him there, we might assume that those happened, you know, a month apart. And yet we're 2,000 years apart and counting. And so it does raise kind of an interesting challenge as we're finishing this book and we think about Old Testament prophecy, it can be challenging integrating that with New Testament prophecy, especially when it's describing some of the same things. We're going to get to more of that later this morning. But we are in a An important time here. We don't want to get lost in the weeds. We want to remember that the most important thing that Isaiah was telling his generation, that Isaiah was telling the generation of the exiles, and that every other person who has ever heard or read these words since then, the most important thing that he came to tell us was that the servant is returning. And he is going to change everything from start to finish. So, at the end of Jeff's message last week, actually it was the bulk of his text, but he took us through Isaiah's prayer. That was chapter 63, 7 through 64, 12. And we saw that it was a heartfelt lament. 
And you can see several of those in the Psalms as well. But uh, Isaiah was rehearsing the steadfast love of God. That's, a, that's an important part of prayer. He was confessing the sinfulness of Israel. Again, another very important part of our conversation with God as we interact with him. And then he was pleading with God to relent and rescue. That was the request. I want to highlight a couple of those phrases from uh, the text that Jeff taught last week. Verse 1 of chapter 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. Verse 5. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time and shall we be saved? Verse 7. There is one who calls upon, I'm sorry, there is no one who calls upon your name. Who rouses himself to take hold of you for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. Verse 9, be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Verse 11, all our pleasant places have become ruins. And in verse 12, will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? The honesty that Isaiah has is very commendable. And as Jeff said last week, we need to be able to come to God and just put it on the table. God can handle it. He invites that. That's a good thing. But let me also say that as you are going about being honest with God, sharing your heart honestly with God, it is absolutely vital that you are open to God honestly sharing his heart with you. Obviously, if there is any complaint against God, it is misplaced. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't say it. It doesn't mean that we won't feel it. But there are no flaws with God. So if, if you're complaining to him about him, uh, you need to leave room for God to address that and realign your perspective so that you see it rightly. And, and honestly, you may even get to a place where you can't reconcile that. But that's not God's problem. It's yours. And it's mine. And it's okay. That is some of the tension that we live with in a broken world. You might think of the interaction that uh, Job and God had. I, I've talked about that several times where Job had some what he felt like were justified complaints. And if anybody had justified complaints, Job did. But you'll recall if you read the end of that book, God's response to him. His loving, merciful, truthful response. So be open to that. So, with that background, Isaiah 65 is God's honest response to Isaiah's prayer. And I do think it's got to be strange. Imagine you're Isaiah, and you're writing your prayer to God, and then you're writing his response to you in the same book, same letter. That's got to be a little bit odd. But here's the big headline. God has been anything but silent. I mean, just... Just think about it. We have the book of Isaiah. He's been speaking through this prophet for, for decades. 
And certainly before that, God has always been speaking through creation, through his prophets, through his priests, through his kings, through his servant. God has been anything but silent. Look at how he responds to Isaiah's prayer. Verse 1 of chapter 65. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am. Here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. Now, that's a little bit surprising. Have you ever asked somebody a question and it looked like they just totally avoided it? And they answered something else? God kind of does that here. He's talking about his readiness to be sought by Gentiles. That's the context here. He's going to get to Israel. But why would God do that? Why would Isaiah bring a complaint to God about God's silence and his uh, lack of initiative or his distance and all that kind of stuff? And he goes, I was ready for the Gentiles to find me. Why would God tell Isaiah that? Here's what I think. I think that Isaiah was declaring a prayer to God that was more about the relief of Israel than re-engaging them in the mission. And I think the first thing that came to God's mind was, hey, listen, I realize I seem silent, distant, detached from you, but I have been missionally filling the earth with my presence. And all I wanted to do, go back to my covenant with Abraham, all I wanted to do was reach the nations. And how was I going to do that? With you, Israel. You were my strategy. I was going to pull you out, set you apart, be my own people, love you, you love me. And then together, out of the blessing that I poured on you, we were going to bless the nations. Where have you been? I think that's what God's doing in verse 1. But then he keeps moving. Goes to verse 2. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, their own thinking, their own strategies. A people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. You've got a people here who are incredibly religious. Absolutely rebellious in terms of their calling. And they think they're doing fine. They're, they're doing religion on their own terms. And they think somehow that ought to be acceptable to God. When he was very clear about the terms. How they were to relate to him. Um, this last phrase, keep to yourself. Do not come near me for I'm too holy for you. Um, absolute hypocrisy, right? They're... they're uh, putting on a show and it reminded me if you're in a community group you just started this last week in this book transformational discipleship and we are committed as a church to making sure that we are about making disciples which means all of us 
are being discipled and all of us are making disciples or in the process of being equipped to do so. But there's a great story in chapter two here, or an illustration that, uh, that Eric Geiger tells about painting his lawn. It's awesome. He says, you know, he comes out on the lawn, he's looking around and there's all these brown patches everywhere. And I guess he lives in a neighborhood where most of the lawns aren't like that. I can totally relate. If you go by my yard, I'm sorry, okay? I'm just gonna apologize and get that off my chest. But he said, there's these brown spots everywhere. And rather than get out and actually do what needs to be done so that grass can live there, paints it green, right? So it, it looks okay. It, it looks alive, but it isn't. That's Israel. They're painting the lawn, but they are dead as can be. Continues. These are a smoke in my nostrils, says the Lord, a fire that burns all day. God is not happy. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap. That is a picture they wore these robes and it would be like your robe having a big fold in it where you could maybe store lunch for the next day. I'm gonna pay it into their lap. Both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord, because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills. I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. Now, keep in mind, this is a just, holy God who cannot turn his head from sin. And these people are not willing to let God do for them what they can't do for themselves. So he will leave them to themselves. Sin is ruthless and heartbreaking. Let's bring this into our context. It absolutely disrupts our fellowship with the Lord, right? I mean, have you ever been getting off track? And it's kind of hard to connect with the Lord when you're going other places, isn't it? It grieves the Holy Spirit. It impairs our prayer life. It confuses us. Sin is a deception. Try spending time in the Word while you're chasing after sin. It's confusing. It violates our relationships and it can cost us dearly in some very practical ways. Yet I think the Lord would very much like us to recognize the profound loss we have in unrealized redemptive influence. So I'm coming back around to that verse one. Certainly the Lord wants to address the sin in our life for us. And whatever consequences or challenges or difficulties we might be experiencing in our own circumstances. But don't miss that God, his greatest intention for you is to use you in his redemptive plan. And when you're chasing after sin, guess what? You're disqualifying yourself from that beautiful mission. And that's a loss. That's not just a, well, that would have been kind of nice. I'm just telling you at the end of your life, wouldn't you love to look back? And God was a, 
I was an instrument, a redemptive instrument in the hands of God. And my life counted for that and will count for all of eternity. That's what we're choosing between getting that or getting something that is absolutely worthless in this world. If you want what is sinful more than all the good that God is eager to give you, then be assured he will not keep silent. He will repay it into your lap. Now with that in mind, uh, Isaiah gives us a contrast of two kinds of people with two kinds of lives. And isn't it merciful of God to, to go ahead of us and to say, hey, listen, <laughs> I know you think you're real smart. I know you think you got it all figured out, but let me tell you what's ahead. Let me tell you the dangers that await you if you just go your own way. So verse eight, thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster and they say, do not destroy it, for there is a blessing in it, so I will do for my servants' sake and not destroy them all. He's using a, a, a vineyard illustration. There's a cluster of grapes, but there's some bad ones in there. And rather than throw out the whole cluster, it's, the idea is, no, there's some good wine in there. So let's, God says, I'm going to hang on to the good grapes. I'm not going to, he could have just destroyed it all. But he's, he's saying, I'm going to set apart, which is actually a shift from what I just read a moment ago, which was more nationally oriented. Now we're getting to an individual focus. The, the distinction is not going to be between Israel and the Gentiles. It's going to be, be between two other people. I'll get there in just a sec. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah, possessors of my mountains, my chosen shall possess it and my servants shall dwell there. Kind of imagery of the promised land. Sharon shall become a pasture for flocks in the valley of Achor, a place for herds to lie down for my people who have sought me. Those references to Sharon in the valley of Achor would have given the idea that it's all of the promised land, coast to uh, property line. All of it. And they'll dwell there in the promised land. And who will dwell there? Not just people who call themselves Israelites. Like it's not an ethnic thing. It's those who have sought the Lord. Don't forget that because the contrast is in 11. But you who forsake the Lord. There it is. Those who seek the Lord and those who forsake the Lord. Those are the two groups. Two kinds of people with two kinds of lives. You who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny. Those are actually two pagan gods, fortune and destiny. And they would, they would literally have, uh, you know, provide dinner, you know, invite those two pagan gods over for dinner and set little statues on pillows. <laughs> he said, I will destine you for the sword. And all of you shall bow down to the slaughter. Because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen. It wasn't that I was silent. I spoke. <laughs> but you didn't listen. You did what was evil in my eyes. And chose what I did not delight in. 
So this is just willful rebellion. These are people who they do know what to do. They have heard of God. They know who he is and what he's done. And yet they want to go their own way. And I'm assuming that those who sought the Lord do the exact opposite. They answer the Lord. They listen to the Lord. They, they did what was right in his eyes and did the things, sought out the things that please him. Do you see how it's not complicated? <laughs> we just got this flesh thing getting in the way. Here's the result. Verse 13, therefore, thus says the Lord God, here's the contrast, behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servants shall sing for gladness of heart, just like we were a minute ago. But you shall cry out for the pain of heart and shall wail for breaking of spirit. You shall leave your name to my chosen for a curse. Like when the reality of your life becomes evident, your name will be a curse. And the Lord God will put you to death. But his servants, he will call by another name. Kind of goes back a couple of weeks ago. My delight is in her. Remember that? Mm. Verse 16. So that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. And he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth. Because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. This is reminiscent of the blessing and curses in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy's fifth book in the first five books of our Old Testament. Those were given to Moses and those were to instruct Israel as they were just beginning to be a nation. And in Deuteronomy, there's outlined blessings and curses. And it's real simple. <laughs> you obey, you get blessing. You disobey, you get a curse. It, it, it's just, you reap what you sow. That was the idea that God gave to his people. And the reason that you would obey is because you trust in the goodness of your God. That he really wants what's best for you. So we've got another version of blessing and curses here. I want you to notice something though. I'm gonna show you a slide and here's the text. I know you probably can't read it. I just read that to you. Now go to the next slide and there is this repetition 10 times. My servant. Actually servants, plural. My servants. And there's a couple in there. It says my chosen referring to the same thing. But we, like, don't miss that. Because remember, we've got two groups of people with two kinds of lives and those who seek the Lord apparently are God's servants. Now think about this. I don't know how many of you have ever had a job or been in a position where you were like a servant. Like you just do whatever the boss man tells you to do. You don't question it. You don't give any feedback. He doesn't care about your opinion. You just do what you're told. I've had jobs like that. It was real simple, <laughs> right? Don't have, don't have to think about anything. Just do what he says, right? But listen, God is talking about his servants. 
And that's an uncomfortable idea for people in the good old US of A. Because we're our own master. We're the smartest guy, the smartest gal in the room. We've got lots of plans and dreams, great intentions, great hopes. And get what I'm saying? A servant doesn't do that. A servant comes to the master and says, it is my absolute delight to do what you say. Like, you tell me what to think, where to go, how to do it, how quickly, when, all that kind of... Like, you answer all those questions. My job is to just do it. Does that stretch you a little bit? Because as a Christian, you're a servant. That's as good a word as we can find to describe you. Certainly you're a friend of God. You're a child of God. There's lots of other titles. But you will never ever graduate from being a servant of God. So I ask the question in my own head. Are you a servant or not? Here's some attributes I think that define. And I, I pulled these from these texts. The Lord's servants seek him. And that's, that's one of those Christianese kinds of things that, you know, we just sort of go, that boy, that'd be nice to seek the Lord. Brother, are you seeking the Lord? You know, I mean, it just like kind of rolls off the tongue. I'm saying when you wake up in the morning, like the psalmist described this as a deer panting for the water. That's what I'm talking about. A servant, he seeks the Lord. That's how he starts his day. He's going after him with everything he's got. He uh, welcomes the Lord. That means it's like, hey, Lord, your servant is listening. <laughs> Tell me what to do. I'm ready to go. He worships the Lord. He adores the Lord. He delights in the Lord and all that he is. And, and he, he wants to just keep digging deeper and deeper and deeper into the fullness of God's attributes so that he might find more and more to worship. He follows the Lord. See, a servant is, is a follower. He's responding. And this sounds sort of silly and stupid but the Lord's servants serve him I mean just get that the, the Lord isn't serving you he does serve you in the sense of like in a positional way but he's the master so you serve him and it will always need to be like that in order for you to have the life that God intends and finally the Lord's servants are the people of promise. That uh, section I just read a moment ago, those are promises. That's, that's the way things are going to play out. But he goes a step further and he says down in verse 17, headline, the best is yet to come. Here it is. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind 
but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and a sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. And goes on to talk about they're going to build and plant and cultivate. And none of that is going to be taken away from them. It will last. It will be preserved. It will be fruitful. It sounds like we're going back to the original creation of heaven and earth. I love verse 24. Behold, they call. I'm sorry, before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. That's what the Lord is saying. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together and the lion shall eat straw like ox and dust shall be the serpent's food. It kind of sounds like a fulfillment of Psalm 103 that Kevin read a moment ago. And it is. Now here's the trick. And this is what's challenging about this section. What Isaiah describes, like you heard me re reference death. Um, you heard me reference uh, sinners. And uh, further down there's a reference to childbearing and offspring. And there's other places that talk about a new heaven and a new earth. And there is no sin. There is no death. There is no marriage. There... Like all that's gone. So what's happening here? What's wrong with Isaiah? Didn't he get the memo? The reality is that there is a progress of revelation so that what Isaiah is describing is as best he can describe it where he is seeing it. And then what happens over literally hundreds of years and the development of revelation that God certainly is controlling, we get greater and greater clarity and detail about what the end will actually look like. So it appears that what Isaiah does is he actually, they call it telescoping, but he pushes together what we understand from Revelation, the millennial kingdom, which is a thousand year reign, Revelation 20, he pushes that into the new heaven and new earth, which is Revelation 21. He just puts those together. And from where he's sitting, he has no concept of time. He doesn't know when it's going to happen, how long it's going to take, and all of the details. He just knows, as I said earlier, God is going to bring everything to a perfect completion. And he will make all things new. So that's an Old Testament perspective. And then again in Revelation, you can look in Revelation 20 and 21 and you'll get a description of the same thing and they are not in contradiction. One is just more fully developed than the other. Now I put in your outline uh, an illustration or a, a picture of millennial positions. And let me just say, please, goodness gracious, we do not divide over this, okay? There's three positions, ah mill, pre-mill, post-mill, okay? This is 
interesting information, certainly. God's going to do it one of these ways. And there are godly people who actually take all of these positions. The most important thing is all agree that there will be a return of Christ and that somewhere in reference to that, he will restore all things. He will fulfill all of the promises that have ever been made by God to his people. That's important there. If you, if you want to learn more about that or talk more about that, shoot me an email. Love to grab coffee and we can get into that. But here's the application. It's a beautiful statement uh, at the beginning of the reference to a new heavens and new earth. There's a command there and it says, be glad and rejoice forever. And I, here's where I want to end today. Uh, the title of the message is Living with the End in Mind. And I don't know how well you do that. It can be kind of challenging when life is coming at you. Circumstances are hard. Maybe you're suffering and things are difficult. But, but listen, it ends well. And we're commanded to be glad and rejoice. And what a shame it is when Christians who have so much hope, <laughs> hope given to them by the God of all of the universe, when they have all that hope and they're down in the mouth. They walk around gloomy and down, just life's so hard. And I know it's hard. I know it's discouraging, but we have a bright future. And that is intended to overshadow whatever challenges we might face today. <clears throat> Nothing wrong with being sad, nothing wrong with being angry, nothing wrong with being lonely. Those are all normal emotions. But let's, let's have the hope that we have in a new heaven and a new earth. Let's let that be the primary dictator of our demeanor and just how we go through life, how we relate to the world around us. Let me ask you some questions here. So what? This is our mindset about application. Like we don't want to go through the Bible and just learn stuff. We want to respond to it. We want it to inform our lives. We want to be servants of the Lord. And so here's a couple of questions maybe for you to consider this morning. Are you painting the lawn? And if you are, then today's a great day to admit it. To come to the Lord and say, I don't want to paint the lawn anymore. I want real grass. <laughs> I want life. Do you live primarily as a servant or a master? I, I tried to give you some descriptors of what that might look like. But that might be a great question for you to engage the Lord. And then finally, is your hope really anchored in a new heaven and a new earth or something else? Is it anchored in something tomorrow or next week or next month or next year, a new promotion, greater amounts of stuff, whatever? Like, where is your hope rooted? There's a couple of places you can go and uh, perhaps there are others, but take a moment prayerfully consider that. 
close us in prayer.